Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back for our second episode here with Alvaro. I am George Armistead. Hey, hey. Alvaro, how's it going today, man? That's really nice. Good. Everything's everything's great out here on the West Coast. What's it like out there in, in Philly? You know, it's kind of a springish day here. Um, it's real windy, a lot of wind out of the Southwest. I'm sitting at my window here facing onto the street in, uh, my condo in Philly. And, uh, you know, I, I keep, I keep seeing like these, it's so windy that I've seen like trash every now and then flying around. And I think, Oh, is that a Raven? Uh, you know, and it's not, but I have seen some turkey vultures drifting around. You can definitely feel there's a lot of folks out and about kind of moving around, you know, people are feeling optimistic, getting vaccinated, feeling like spring is here, birds are moving, maybe a swallow-tailed kite is going to drift on by or something. So, yeah, oh, wow. there's kind of spring optimism in the air here, I think. Think think big. Hey, when you were a kid, right, would you have seen a raven in Philly? No, no. There were, there were zero – I think they're – I think, like, historically, there's, like, zero – historical records of Raven in the city or even, you know, the surrounding area until like about 2010. Now, you know, I see them about half the time I go out now and I don't know if they got shot out of here during, you know, colonial era or what, but they are really moving down the coast as I think is, is what you were kind of driving at. Yeah. Yeah. They've really expanded down southwards. And I don't know if that's a, Recolonization, or if it's actually a new colonization, like they've expanded their niche or, or what or something. But you know, most most species are moving northwards, right? Um, ravens, one that's moving south, is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's always been among my top reincarnation birds, the raven. I thought if I was going to come back, you know, what I like to come back as. Raven, you know, they can go just about anywhere. They can eat just about anything. They're super smart, pretty social, you know, hmm. be a good one. They slide on snow They make snow slides. That's right. You know, they, That's right. They're kind That'd of the be. otters of the bird world. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. I think they, they see eye to eye with the, the mustelids, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I saw you... Uh, you had an interesting yard bird today. Oh, oh, the 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 funny goldfinch. Yeah, Is that, uh, yeah. So that's interesting. So uh, yeah, I posted this funny goldfinch that to me. So here we have American goldfinch, lesser goldfinch, and pine siskin, which is a relative. And um, this thing, I saw it, and I thought, oh, there's a lesser goldfinch, and I looked at. You know, had it with my binoculars. I'm, that's not a lesser goldfinch. What is it? You know, and it, it's seldom that a backyard bird kind of trips me up. You know, because you're seeing the same things over and over and over again. And and I thought, oh, I I don't know what that. Then I started thinking, you know, it kind of looks like a bit of pine siskin in it. Maybe it's a hybrid. Then then I went to it's an American goldfinch, but just really grayish rather than. The other birds here, the other females look yellow and green on the back and yellow on the head. And this just looked kind of grayish and dull green, weird. Um, 
But interestingly, there's, you know, I've kind of posted it around. Some people sort of say it kind of looks normal to them. And I thought, really? I mean, is this like a ge geography thing that maybe they look like that in some places? Perhaps they're retaining some winter, the whole winter plumage has just become worn and it hasn't molted into a, the breeding kind of more yellowish green thing. And so now I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of neat because these are these are the kinds of things that I think frustrate a lot of birders. It's like, you know, I just want to know what it is, but I don't. I actually want to learn what I can from this, you know. Mm -hmm. The end result is not as interesting as the whole idea of like, wow, could it be that in some places, you know, goldfinches are really grayish like this? Maybe. Yeah. Or, or could it be that every so often some of them don't molt and look grayish like this? Maybe. But um, – I just never had thought about it. So the fact that I'm thinking about it is kind of the joy for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a common, <laughs> common bird that uh, looks very uncommon for somebody that knows them very well. Um, yeah. So did you think it looked weird? Yes. I thought it looked weird. I mean, I we, we get some really worn, dull-looking goldfinches here, but I've never seen one so devoid of color as that i was i was thinking is there like a great basin you know american goldfinch population or something that's you know real dull or something i, I don't know but yeah I, I haven't seen one quite like that yeah so that's that's good to know confirmation that it's not just weird in my eyes but uh yeah it's uh, you know people put down backyard birding some of the best birding can happen in the backyard if you're because you're re repeating, right? You're seeing everything over and over again. That's the real training for your eyes and your mind. Um, I think anyway. Yeah. You like you good. and your plastic bags. Eventually, <laughs> you know, one of those plastic bags going by is going to be a kite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner or later. I, I have had Mississippi kite from this window, so which is quite a good bird for Pennsylvania. Soon to be off the review list, I think, but uh, but still. Huh quite a good bird so yeah no i think you're right having uh, whether it's your backyard local patch a place that kind of anchors you is your waypoint against which you measure other places that you go and learn about birds backyard's a great place to start and where some of the most thrilling discoveries have been made uh for, yeah. for many birders so um so yeah man i wanted to share a couple pieces of news. Well, yeah, you've been, are you going to talk about the fact that you've been around, you've been traveling or is that <laughs> coming up later? Yeah, I was going to talk about that. Um, and I mean, also I wanted to, I think I let you know, we, we had our meeting yesterday with our colleague, Molly Brown, who's our sort of magician behind the scenes here. And, uh, and yeah, we, uh, I mentioned that I had just gotten my first COVID shot. So am thrilled that in a couple of weeks, I'll get the second one and, you know, be, be well on our way here. And uh, I don't remember if I mentioned in the first podcast, but that I'm fairly recently engaged as well um, to yes. my, my fiance, Kristen Klein, which is very exciting. And very exciting. The whole world is congratulating you right now. You, know? <laughs> you kind of feel that it, this is a hard medium to feel the the crowd, but you just got to yeah. feel the crowd for a moment here. Oh, I feel it, man. I feel it. I feel the warmth. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but no. And, and as you say, we just got back. I did my first trip really since, you know, this whole 
pandemic started, kind of had to rush home from Canada when it started a little over a year ago. And uh, you, you should have stayed in Canada, actually. But <laughs> yeah, really, yeah, winters might have been a little, little grim. But uh, but yeah, arguably a better, better place to be than Philadelphia. But well, uh, yeah, at least in the early part of the COVID scene, it was, was it kind of had its thing together. Yeah, that's but, true. Yeah. But yeah, me and me and Kristen took off for Columbia uh, on uh, 27th February. Spent a week in the Llanos uh, in uh, eastern, sort of northeastern Colombia. And then Kristen flew back home to Philly. She had to work. She's a nurse. And then I continued on sort of a scout slash pleasure trip uh, to uh, sort of where the Orinoquia region of eastern Colombia meets the Amazonia region, really kind of more in Orinokia still, but it felt very Amazonian in terms of birds uh, and spent another week there. And uh, in between, had a couple days in Bogota, went up to Suma Paz, finally got Bogota Rail, which was kind of overdue for me. Chris Bell at the Birders Show took me and my buddy Todd out and we had to work for it, but eventually it paraded out beautifully. And, uh, and, and we saw the Apollinar's wrens too, which are real cool. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, it was just, it was just good to be traveling again. We, you know, obviously traveling towards the end of this pandemic, it wasn't like there were zero risks. We were, we were real careful, as careful as we could be. We had to have negative PCR tests to enter Columbia and then had to have them to get back into the U S. So that all went pretty well. And, um, yeah, I mean it was different, right? It's a different different situation mm-hmm. now. One nice thing was uh the community we went um in Eastern Columbia there, they'd actually all already been vaccinated. Uh there's a mm. bunch of indigenous communities there and the, the government actually worked fast to get them uh vaccinated cuz the the they were at risk from the Brazilian strain. So we got there and oh, yeah. honestly it was about as you know, it's hard to imagine a much safer place to be. All the birding was outside, you know, all the restaurants, open air, not, a, you know, not big crowds anywhere. It's a small town and everybody had been vaccinated. And for me, it was my first trip to Amazonia, really. You know, I got, I think of the, about a third to half the birds were new birds I'd never even seen before. So pretty exciting. Yeah. So I want to let people in on a little trade secret here, you know, from the, uh, tourism, bird tourism trade. So, you know, guides will sometimes go on these trips to do reconnaissance, recce trips, you know, like to figure things out, see if the hotels work and play it up like it's uh, some kind of really complex, difficult, almost sometimes even dangerous thing to be out there. But in fact, they're always pleasure trips, as you mentioned. In fact, that's, you know... (laughs) They're good fun for everybody. It's yes. where the guide, in a sense, gets to really, um, without having the stress of anybody else there with them, figure every stuff out. And it's a, it's a, an interesting. I mean, uh, one could do a whole talk on reconnaissance trips because you really are going into the unknown. Sometimes some places are brand new, um, and. Uh, it really isn't dangerous. I just made that up, but um, it 
it is uh, a whole aspect of, I think, guiding that is not talked about much, but it's actually incredibly important for every, you know, sometimes one person will go to a new place like you might have and open it up for hundreds of other people to come through and then local communities to actually be able to um, take in on the uh, birding economy in a sense. And hopefully those, you know, indigenous communities there actually will reap some benefits from all this in the future. But anyway, yeah. there's my aside on, on reconnaissance trips. They're pretty cool. Some it's true. good times yeah. can be had. <laughs> yeah, well, well worth noting, and and uh, and the spot I did go, you know, it was in part for fun, but as you say, it was a recce trip as well, a place that I expect to lead trips to in the future. Uh, it, called Aniri, though there, and and, and a very few groups really have been so far uh, to this place, and it is largely indigenous folks that uh, have the land there and all the great birding spots, and they do stand to benefit from ecotourism. So uh, yeah. You know, the, the one thing that's crazy there is there's a bit of a population boom going on, especially with some folks coming in from uh, across the border. So hopefully the habitat will be continue to be preserved. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, you know, you hope that birding ecotourism in general will, will help uh, towards that end. But uh, yeah, man, I got my first giant river otters, you know, so, wow. you know, the, 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 the uh, the boto the 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 dolphins there and uh, Amazon river dolphins and uh, had those are the pink ones right? yeah the ones in the Orinoco are are not quite as pink as the ones in the Amazon but uh, and I think they're a little smaller too um, but still yeah they're rosy and um, yeah that those were cool to see. And yeah, one of the things, I don't remember if I told you, Al, one of my favorite things we saw was we climbed that beautiful tapui there in the Cerros de Mavacure, about halfway up, had a beautiful orange-breasted falcon perched up. And this is the first one I've ever really seen well. I'd seen one other, like Dan Lane and I saw one in Bolivia that just kind of rocketed by real quick. Didn't get much of a view of it, though. And... um this one perched and, you know, it didn't care about us. We kind of found it when we were already pretty, pretty close to it. it. You know, surprised each other, but the bird didn't seem to care about us. We watched it for a good 10 minutes. Finally, it pooped, you know, like it was about to take off. And I was like, okay, it's going to go. And sure enough, it goes shooting out over the forest, high above the forest. We're just watching the, the backside of it as it heads away. And all of a sudden you realize uh, coming the other direction is a roadside hawk. Just kind of, you know stretching its wings, first flight up in the morning, looking sort of happy-go-lucky, you know, da, 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 flying along, you know. And all of a sudden, he catches sight of this orange-breasted falcon rocketing towards him, and he drops like a stone. He wanted no part of that falcon. He was just like, he was like, oh, don't. Just like, I'm dead. yeah, he was like, I am out. Bullets. I am gone. Yeah, and the orange-breasted falcon. Was, exactly. Just like that falcon was ripping around. I mean, that thing owned that that area it was really impressive to see that um but we saw a bunch of good stuff but those were some of the highlights uh dolphins and these you know these tepuis uh you know if people haven't been to south america they're kind of interesting mounds like big rock uh outcroppings that sort of pop out of nowhere you know the classic sort of 
romancing the stone kind of, you know, waterfalls popping out of these mountains in the middle of that don't look like mountains. They look like just single hills. That's what they look like. Um, yeah, the ones in Colombia. Yeah, I, I saw a video of you like climbing up one of those and it, it looked, I mean, it looked almost, almost like going up to see the Horn Guan in Guatemala or something. You look kind of tired when you were getting up there. It's, it's, <laughs> it seemed like it was kind of a strain. It's not for everybody to go up to this spot. <laughs> this is true. This is true. It was a challenging hike. I mean, I think it'd be a challenging hike for just about anybody. Um, but, you know, my buddy Todd was with me and he's he's fit as he can be. And he didn't, he, he was, you know, he was like, this is a tough hike. I got up there. I, they practically had to drag me up there. Um, but I did get up and, you know, you were saying it's, you know, some of these places aren't really dangerous. I will say my buddy Roger told me last time he did that hike, they had four different fair to Lance on the side of the trail on the hike up there. Yeah. Four, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of fair to Lance. Yeah. The, uh, you know, and- for folks. Folks and for know. people who don't know George, he does he does not like snakes, and that's uh, <laughs> that's a snake that you'd leave alone. Um, yes. Well, you're selling this place, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think most folks could do the first leg of that hike without any trouble. Uh, it's steep but short, and from there, even you get a marvelous view and, and a good chance to see the falcon. Um, so there, there, that, but yeah, going much further, you certainly thought about it. Uh, the only snake we saw up there was a little chicken snake, which is actually kind of cute. But yeah, as you know, I, I, I love seeing snakes from a distance, but man, if they surprise me, I will shriek like a small child. I, uh, I, I really, yeah, suffer from that sometimes. Yeah. Snakeophobia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's an official name, um, Usually George knows the big words, but I'm not sure he's going to come up with this one. <laughs> yeah, Herpetophobia or something. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know. Serpentophobia. <laughs> Suffering from it so acutely, I really ought to know, but uh, yeah, not in this case. But no, uh, that sounds really great. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it, it's a little uncomfortable um, to talk about travel, even. Um, for, and I'm sure some people will be thinking, oh, boy, you know, um, it's uh, should be should somebody be traveling? So on? And it's a risk assessment, right? It's a it's a real idea of like testing and, you know, uh, COVID, how what's going on in the local area, what's going on where you live and so forth. And uh, it's particularly difficult for us because, I mean, I think people know us as people that that travel for um work as bird tour guides and, and educators and so forth but actually travel uh as i haven't been able to do it for for a year i've realized that it it kind of defines who i am and without yeah. travel i've felt a little lost yeah I've more than a little. little bit like yeah so and it, it has nothing to do with the work uh or you know the Income, those are separate issues from the fact that uh, I've just not been allowed to do something that is part of who I am. Yes. So it's a real difficult, um, you know, when some somebody says to me, well, you know, um, I guess you're, you have trepidation about travel. I actually don't, from, at least for myself. I can't wait till to go somewhere and feel um, part of my personality coming back to me. 
So, yes. I mean, I'm sure you felt that too. Very much so. Mm-hmm. And it, as you say, it's one of these things where I, I keep telling people, I feel like all opinions are valid, right? You have to assess for yourself what you're comfortable with. And I keep reminding myself that there are risks no matter what you do, you know, uh, if you the minute you you know step into your bathtub or out your front door or you know take a bite of food you know there's there's risks all the time uh, some of them we just take for granted now obviously traveling during a pandemic is you know not necessarily the same thing but we looked at the fallen numbers we looked at the precautions in this case Kristen was fully vaccinated and a nurse herself. I, and I, as you say, I it's been a rough, rough year. This was something I felt like, you know, as in her case, she, Kristen, she's been treating COVID patients for, you know, a year now and felt like she deserved to do something. And we wanted to do something. I wanted to do something, having, being somebody who works in travel. So, yeah, we, we made that choice and uh, it was a thrill and it, it you know, I don't think I'll ever take travel for granted as I may have fallen into the habit of doing in, you know, uh, years past. I sure didn't take it for granted this time. Um, and it is, as you say, it's a core part of my being a core part of your being. It's what we do. So, um, or a big part of what we do anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, and you know, we're starting to see signs. In fact, I'm wearing my Hawaiian shirt here in honor of your upcoming trip uh, to Hawaii, Alvaro. Yeah. Yeah. Next, next month. Uh, yeah. We, we've got a trip, you know, with uh, Mandy Talpas, you know, and Molly, Molly Brown actually uh, taking people out, showing them birds in Hawaii. And it's interesting that, you know, for me, assessment of, of places, islands have been important. Islands uh, don't have, the flow of people in the same way that mainland sites do. They've been, some of them been able to control COVID um, much more readily than others. New Zealand being a real prime example, but Hawaii has actually been on the whole uh, doing pretty well and testing regimes and so forth before you get on the plane. And the fact that, you know, um, everybody going is vaccinated, you know, um, or at least for the most part, if not probably will be by then. Uh, But in any case, uh, we felt, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's in, it's within the U.S., so there's also some little lessening of the risk there. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but a lot of people are, are are ready to to do something and are assessing those risks themselves. Um, and uh, you know, outdoor dining, picnic lunches. There's there's going to be some things that we're going to do a little differently than than um, maybe sort of the standard trip, um, but. I think uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, pelagics, pelagics are always good outdoor activities. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, keep that in mind, folks. Viruses don't like humid environments with ten, fifteen knot winds. So, <laughs> <laughs> but being I just, outside I, on a boat, quite yeah. quite a, a good spot to, yeah. to go and see birds and enjoy wildlife Whales without and having dolphins. fear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. We'll see. We'll see how it works. Yeah. I just signed up to do, uh, to, to be a leader on some of Brian Pattison's trips coming up and spring out of Hatteras. I haven't been the last couple of years and surely after this oh, last cool. year, I am hungry for it, you know, hungry to get out there. Mm-hmm. 
and see black cap petrels and shearwaters and storm petrels and hopefully some whales and dolphins too. So uh, yeah, I've got the pelagic bug. And what are you hoping to see on your your boat trips off Hawaii? God, I, you know, um, I can't say. I, I'm kind of uh, hoping to just be surprised, but I think I'd love to see um, a Bulworth petrel, um, mm. especially the Hawaiian. Well, you know, I don't want to get into all the details, but all these Bulworth petrels all over the world are probably different species, and this this could be a, a different one. And I, it's not like I've really seen a Bulworth petrel. I had a glimpse of one once, so... Actually, that's the worst kind of bird. Like your orange-breasted falcon. Actually, same thing. Like a you, taste, a taste of honey being worse than none at all. You know, right? You just sort of say, "Yeah, you know, there it is." Um, but it wasn't very good look. So you actually, that bird climbs up. Those species climb up on your list of things you want to see more so than something you've never seen at all. So you absolutely. Know, yeah, it's the the better view desired birds, the ones that that kind of capture attention, you know. Um, but you know, it it um, it'd be great to see Neil Shearwater. Never seen those, and I'd be up for anything. White neck petrel. Yeah, what about black black winged? That's the one I always wanted out there. Was black winged petrel? Black winged petrel. Yeah, yeah. So but you, you never know. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it could it might just. See a Nadia and a booby. Yeah. <laughs> you never know these trips, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, the, that, that wouldn't be bad. Blue gray naughty. There you go. That's what you need. There you go. <laughs> but uh, no, um, you know, one of the things that actually, if you're you know talking about these seabirds and stuff, I was uh, thinking the other day about our climate regime here. Um, just recently we've had. Um, yes. Um, this is. I wanted yeah, to ask you this, about this. this. I know I, the RRR, um, and it's not rest and relaxation or anything. But um, <laughs> there's this guy, Daniel Swain, and he's um, he, he's a climate climatologist. He's a young guy, and um, a few years ago, he um, he was studying. He was a grad student, and uh, he realized that when you know in the 2013 kind of that that time frame there was this situation that happened over winter where a ridge of high pressure parked itself offshore from california now a ridge of high pressure means that you don't get rain in fact it it makes the the fronts go around it like over the top so we didn't get very much rain we had this drought actually the last big drought in california was roughly in that period the next few years and this ridge stayed there and it didn't move and it didn't weaken and it was just weird nobody had ever seen it before so he called it the ridiculously resilient ridge the rrr i love that and name. this <laughs> yeah this thing caught on because it it was just crazy for the the climate and weather people it's like what's going on well um it turns out that this ridge is also associated with a change in the winds on the ocean and the ocean then warms up and you get the blob. So if you've ever heard of the, the warm water blob that set, parked itself off of California, uh, roughly at that time of, you know, the, you know, the 13, 14, 15 or so, uh, that's, 
it's all related. And to give you an idea of what happened, the water warmed up so much that boobies started showing up in numbers. That's when the booby invasion kind of started in California. We had movements of blue-footed boobies. Next year, we had brown boobies. Um, fish from the south came north. Um, Even some Nazcas started to show up more. Was that related yeah. to that? Was- yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. all kind of post that period. In fact, it it just really shook up the ocean. It was almost like if you'd you know you were in New Jersey on the coast and you woke up and you open up the windows one day and instead all of the avifauna from Florida was in your backyard. You know, like it's a it was a massive shift of hundreds of of miles northward for creatures that usually were in Mexico, wow. it, and it even affected little you know. Um, little small worms and, you know, uh, all sorts of other stuff. Um, and well, it's happening again. So that's the thing. Um, and these are the kinds of things. It's almost like, you know, the stock market, you know, when you say, Oh, we're entering a bear market and you don't really know that you're in it until later they say, well, okay, now we confirmed it three months ago, a bear market started. You know, it's like that. So they've just confirmed that our, 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 has been Set up shop this winter, set mm-hmm. up shop in California, off of California. And that's why it's been such a dry winter. We've had a couple of storms, some good ones, but um, really low um, water, low water last year. So we're entering a drought. Now the next thing is, okay, what will happen with the ocean temperature? Is it going to warm up? And are we going to get another blob situation? So, yeah. No, uh, yeah. You, lots, you showed- lots to think about. You showed a big graphic on your Facebook page. It was like, I mean, this looked this blob looked like it encompassed an enormous area. Was that is that the blob from this year, or is that the one from I think it was twenty thirteen? Um, that that was actually the ridge. That was the, the ridge that itself. was the high pressure ridge itself. So that was the the air part of this rather than the water part of this. Okay. So and that seems, you know, this is also new that. This, you know, this guy, Daniel Swain, so on, he's kind of put out papers on this and, and so forth and kind of changed uh, the way people view this, you know, relationship here between ridges, storms, water temperature, and how this might be a new phenomenon that is <clears throat> is perhaps related to climate change. Um, you know, climate people tend to be pretty conservative to giving any one event causation but it's yeah it's pretty much what they're thinking so it's not good news um but as it's always you know birders we we might find some rare birds due to it so that kind of makes us happy but on the whole it's not good for the environment it Um, sort of creates like a desertification of the 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 waters around it is that is that a fair thing to say yeah yeah usually um, warm water has fewer nutrients than cold water. Cold water is bringing nutrients either from from more polar areas or from the bottom up towards the top. So to the you know where the the sunlight is. So then you you are getting more of that tropical water, which actually isn't that um, nutrient great in terms of yeah. Yeah. Um, on. On the other hand, you know, one of the weird things that's happened is we've had a lot of wind, so we're getting a lot of upwelling right close to the coast. So the water is actually cold close to the coast, and we had that happen at, at times 
during the blob era too, that the water was really warm offshore and to our north. And yet we had really cold water here. So we had everything that, uh, that local captains call it the squeegee effect. Basically, all of the food was closer to the shore and all of the whales and all of the stuff was within the first 10 miles, which usually isn't the case. Often they're further, 20 miles out, 25 miles out. So it really looked good, right? It looked like, oh, it's full of life. But in fact, everything would have been 30, 40 miles of life. Yeah. Yeah. We're pushed right up against the coast. So, uh, um, yeah, it's... it's also variable um, that you can't predict what's going to happen. But the fact that another RRR, the triple R is set up is eh, scary. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculously resilient Ridge. Sounds like a, like a brand new razor that just came out. I know. Yeah. That's right. Or or a big truck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But not good news. I do remember, you know, it's funny when you, when you posted that, I was thinking, I was actually, I remember going to the Salton Sea that year. The only time I've ever been to the Salton Sea and seeing some of the blue footed boobies uh, that had made it there. And I think that year it was like a record number, right? It was like dozens. If I remember. Yeah. 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 And they were, I mean, they were regular enough that you could sit at a coastal spot where migrant seabirds go by and just wait and you could see a blue-footed booby go by so it was a little crazy um yeah yeah. you know you know alvaro you know where i once saw a blue-footed booby was in oregon (laughs) that's right i was there you were there yep uh i remember i is it the classic kind of thing you shouldn't do when you're a birder talking to anybody, an experienced birder, is to assume, right? So one of the participants said, hey, what's this brown thing sitting here on the rock? Um, you know, it's neat. And I just immediately, I remember it was me or you, it immediately went to, must be an immature brand's cormorant. And started giving a spiel about how brands cormorants are brown when they're young, but without even looking at the bird. And I think, I think then we looked, I was like, Oh my God, that's a booby. Yeah. I, the way I remember it is, yeah, it was, was like, yeah, we're there at Yaquine ahead in Oregon, you know, just there to, you know, on a tour looking to take in the expected birds like brands cormorant, picking out some pe- pelagic cormorants maybe you know whatever we see we're going for pigeon the expected, gilmot, yeah. yeah pigeon gilmots the expected stuff that's fun to see you know on on in the cliffs and around the rocks and in the water there and the participant i remember his name was was uh was bill and i remember oh, yeah, he, yeah and i remember he him saying that what's this brown bird and i remember like i panned into it i panned into it you know i'm like scanning just as he said that i panned into it and I just go, oh my god! And I was just like, and I that—that that was all I could say. I kept saying, oh my god! And all of a sudden, you go, is that a blue-footed booby? And I just kept going, oh my god! <laughs> I just like it was like I knew what it was, but like it was like, nope, you're wrong. Your brain was like, that's a blue-footed booby. Nope, incorrect. Can't be here. Incorrect. It was like this negative feedback loop that just like kept you know short-circuiting my brain. 
maybe my lecture on the on the Franz Corman was internal, and I, I just didn't let it let it go. But I was thinking it. I was like, you know, <laughs> brown bird on the rock's going to be a juvenile Franz Corman, you know. Um, yeah, but that was a that was a big commotion because. Do you remember that it was it was by the lighthouse and um I think there had never been one in Oregon before. I think it, it was, was the first, first one. Yeah, first state record. Yeah. And and the we reported it and the booby promptly after we left sat on the kind of downslope of the rock rather than the obvious part of the rock. So the only way the Oregon birders could see it was to actually take the tour of the lighthouse and go up to the top. That's right. And then from the top of the lighthouse, and this was the next day because I think it only stuck around for a day. They would see it, and and apparently there was there were pictures of like all these birders lined up at the lighthouse because you were only allowed like five minutes up there or something before you had to come down the steps and the next group had to go up. So all these birders would get five minutes up at the top of the lighthouse to see the booby and then come down. And it was, uh, it was quite. A, we we actually. That was that was a legendary trip. We were finding all sorts of stuff all over the place. I re- recall, and you know. yeah, Hudsonian <laughs> Godwit was a good another good one that we had uh, on that trip. And that's uh, right, some warblers in the interior. That's um, right, yeah, hooded warbler. I remember was over there at uh, the refuge out east that I'm forgetting the name of the big refuge uh, where they had the protests. Yeah. Wasn't there a Cape May as well or something? Yeah, I don't it might know. Be. It was a good trip. It was a good trip. Yeah. The the other thing I remember about the booby was that we were trying to figure out how to get the word out because we like knew a few Oregon birders, but this was early 2000s. I don't know, it was like 2002 or something. And, uh, and you know, like people had cell phones for the most part, but not everybody. Um, and I remember we, we were trying to figure out how to get the word out to tell people about this bird. We knew it was yeah. a really good bird, potential state first record. And I remember the two people I called one was Paul Lehman, and he was up on St. Lawrence Island in Alaska. So I was calling him to get the, the word out about this bird in Oregon, right where we were, because I knew he'd have contacts. The other person I called was our, our buddy and, and recently passed was Ned Brinkley. And he was like, right. he was like, that's amazing. But look, I'm literally on a pelagic trip. We're like steaming out to sea. You know, he's like, I can't get in touch with anybody for a couple hours. So it was just one of those things like, here you are, birds right here. We don't know who to call. So we're calling people on opposite sides of the country to try to get the word yeah, out. Yeah. But yet somehow I think Paul did get the word out mm-hmm. to somebody. Uh, then it, then it kind of uh, filtered through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- those are, those are cool things when you just connect with a rare bird like that. Um, uh, the excitement of rare, of finding an unusual something or other is always the best. I think. Yeah, you know? the element of discovery yeah. is one of the right. one of the great things about birding. Yeah, no, definitely, and uh, yeah, I wonder how many boobies they've had by now. You know, it's like you know I'll somebody's bet- going to go to eBird now and they go, ah, oh, there's like fifteen of them. What's the big deal? Well, yeah. it was the first kids back in yeah. the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure since the uh since the RRR setup shop, they probably had quite a few more by now. But uh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to think to think there was a point in time that, you know, a cardinal there was the first cardinal showed up in Massachusetts or something, you know, like and that was a thing. And now they're everywhere. 
Yeah. But, a lot of yeah, stuff has changed uh, with climate is changing yeah. so much so fast. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like, I can only laugh about it because if you think too much about it, you can get bummed out. <laughs> yeah. Think, things are going to change no matter what any of us do. All you can do is do your best and hope your your fellow humans do the same. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah, I figure you might as well try to lead a happy life while, while you can. Uh, so, Al, we're at about 40 minutes here. One thing I did want to ask about was I know you got a talk coming up. Um, and this is sort of you'd, – you'd mentioned it sort of involves like comparison of, of lizard brain, animal brain, thinking fast, thinking slow. Tell us about this talk you got coming up. Um, yeah, so um, it's it's based. Well, I've I've been t- doing a talk about how the brain identifies birds for for a few years, but right there's this book by Daniel uh, Kahneman, who's uh, he's he's you know Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he's got a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And this talk is called Birding Fast and Slow. And it's it, it really is amazing how a lot of the brain studies that have been done and how people make decisions and work through things are so applicable to birding. And they're so applicable to understanding not only how we enjoy birding, but also how we can learn to be better at identifying birds or even how to be an intention. I would call it an intentional birder, like where you're you're going out um, with certain intentions of getting connected to nature and, you know, your, your whole, or maybe you're going out to find a rare bird or something, you know, but really knowing and sort of understanding the benefits and things that birding brings to you and trying to almost like reap those benefits intentionally. But yeah, this is, it's, it's about, you know, it's a lot of things are coming together for me, like health, wellness, identification, why I like gulls, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> why people like bright warblers. It's amazing you were able birding. to sneak the gull, the yeah. larophile, the gull love in there. Yeah. The rest of these somehow, it's impressive. Yeah. yeah, but you know we have we have sort of two pathways in the brain, and one of them does things automatically, and one of them does things in a very calculated. Um, uh, analytical way and they're working at the same time and what i've kind of started realizing from kind of getting into this the basic gist of it is that new birders do everything analytically actually being a new birder and learning birds is really brain intensive mm-hmm. actually can be even tiring overwhelming and experienced birders do it all automatically they 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 have shifted so much to their the sort of lizard brain reflex type uh, activity in our head that it's much easier for us to just go out and, and enjoy and just like almost be at ease completely as a birder out there, just taking it all in, even when Mm -hmm. millions of things are happening. In fact, the more stuff that's happening, the more enjoyable it can be. Well, for a, a newer birder, it's it's actually tough work for the brain, you know, to actually do all this. And it's yes. uh, and I'm, very- I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to understand too how to teach people how to do this. But anyway, yeah, yeah, it's a great topic, rich, 
rich topic. I look forward to checking this out. I thinking when you're talking about it, you're it's you're right. Like I love just letting birds kind of wash over me, taking in the experience, um, you know, knowing that these things are out there kind of leading their independent lives and they really don't care about me at all. They're just doing their thing and having an understanding of their journey. And I, I think about a place like Cape May, which is, you know, close to here in Philly and and one of the one of the birding meccas of the entire world. And if you get a good flight day, I've been there with groups and it's just as you say, for the experienced, it's beyond thrilling. And I really think it can be thrilling for anybody. But I've seen it for new birders where there's so much happening at once. Birds are shooting around overhead, bush to bush, you know, where they actually, it's like stressful. You know, they, they feel like they feel like they're just missing stuff. They're not actually seeing stuff. They're only missing stuff. And it's like, you have to actually kind of like, kind of t- take it down a couple notches and be like, you know, just, just experience it. And, uh, that's, that's sometimes better than trying to sort out everything you see. Cause it can be pretty overwhelming at times. Yeah. And, and our brain really does not like loss. Um, we, we think of loss as a, as a stronger motivator than gain. So the fact that somebody might say, Oh my gosh, you know, I know there's lifers flying over my head right now that I cannot see or cannot tell that is actually painful mm-hmm. um, to a birder while to experienced bird, they know exactly what's going over or they have a pretty good idea and they're just kind of relaxed with it. They're not, they're all they're experiencing is gain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another aspect of this talk too. It's like the whole, yeah, our brains are pretty cool things. And I think when we understand how much birding does to, um, work out our brain and also give us happiness, joy, and connection, both to people and to nature, it it becomes one of the most amazing things anybody could do. And in fact, I would ask people to try to create new birders for to make you feel better and to make them feel better because it's a pretty amazing thing, you know. It's true. I'm still trying with my family. They're they they don't you know <laughs> they think I'm nuts. Well, they're, they're right for re- more reason than one, but uh, yeah, no, I know, I, I, I know what you mean, and uh, it's true. I think, uh, I think, and you see it. All, all of us that are birders, we just want to build more birders because we know the peace and uh, and you know, it's a life in pursuit of beauty and 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 awe of nature. It's it's hard to you know, once, once you start to experience that, you don't ever really want to let it go. And I saw you, you were among a number of our colleagues that posted the article. Uh, I don't remember if it was in the guardian or someplace else art, the article that came mm-hmm. out that basically uh, for people that watch birds, they, that brings them more richness than, than money and wealth uh, ever, ever could more, more, more happiness. It's a pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Article. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, I buy it, um, and I think the, um, the the issue is that more and more people are also, as we talked last time, just getting into it, and that's that's a real good thing for for the world. Um, yes. it you know it's uh, there's a lot of benefits to be gained from birding, and uh, maybe next time we can also talk about how it's it's important for for people who've been doing this for a long time and uh, who've kind of been 
in you know writing books and doing this kind of stuff to um, facilitate the shift of birding to a, a more meaningful type of activity than strictly sort of the old school go there see it move on to the next bird you know more of an acquisitional kind of birding to a more holistic and I don't know I don't know what to call it you know but I think is there's a richer birding out there that could could actually include the acquisitional birding within it but yes. that's not the entire realm right. of how this works not to the exclusion of everything else yes our yeah. po- our podcast is called life list a birding podcast and I think we next episode we can get into a little bit why we're we're going with that title and and a little bit of the philosophy behind it I think that's be a good one for discussion. I think we should invite people that are listening, hopefully the the many, many thousands of listeners, uh, yeah. if, if there's stuff you'd like us to take up, if there's subjects you'd like us to take up, um, please do let us know. Um, we do have an email address and a website. I think it's, it's lifelistpodcast at gmail.com, right? Have I got that mm-hmm. right? Life, I think so. Yeah, lifelistpodcast we'll, at gmail.com. We'll put we'll it all yeah, have on it the on notes the, yeah. down below. But yeah, we want to hear from you guys what you'd like to talk about. And uh, we expect to do some interviews here and there too with different folks. Um, so yeah, we hope to hear from you. Anyway, Al, I think we should probably wrap up for today. But good chatting with you, amigo. And um, yeah, more soon, huh? Yeah, right. That was That was fun. Yeah, good I can't time. wait till the next one. Yeah, I know. I want to see those Columbia pictures. Oh yes, <laughs> gotta share them. All right, All thanks. Right. Have a good one, everybody. Yeah. Bye bye.